Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The latest from 7 News with Michael Usher. Good evening and welcome tonight. A mass vaccination super hub and an aged care home hit by Sydney's COVID outbreak. Vaccine wars escalate as thousands of young people take up the PM's invitation to get the AstraZeneca. Saving the season, how the AFL's anti-COVID hubs are working and an emotional day. We'll go live to London as Harry and William unveil a new statue of Princess Diana. But first, a second Sydney nurse has tested positive to COVID as New South Wales recorded 24 new cases, several of whom had been active in the community. Let's go to our reporter, Serena Andalora, live in Sydney with this. Uh, Serena, good evening to you. What's the latest here? Michael, good evening to you. We now have three healthcare workers who have tested positive. You might remember yesterday we were speaking about that 24-year-old unvaccinated nurse who splits her time between Royal North Shore Hospital and Fairfield Hospital. Well, she's the source of the outbreak. And we also have three hospital wards now in lockdown as well as a nursing home. The Summit Care in Borkham Hills, and authorities really are concerned about that one. It's bringing back memories and fears of Newmarch House. It really did spread very quickly through that facility. It was a deadly outbreak. But the saving grace with this one is that we're told most yeah. of the people in this facility are vaccinated. Now, the, um, we did see 24 new cases overnight with um, bringing the total number of cases associated with this outbreak to 195 with two cases in ICU. And as always, we did see uh, a number of new exposure sites dropped just this evening in suburbs like Earlwood, Bankstown, Maroubra, Bosley Park. So if you have been to any of those places listed on the New South Wales Health website, the advice to get tested and isolate for the full 14 yeah. days. Going to look at it. Not good though when it's near hospitals and aged care homes, Serena. But mm. meanwhile, the New South Wales Premier Gladys Berejiklian has warned that the current lockdown in her state will not work if people don't change their behaviour. It's as simple as that. Yeah, and the concern is, of course, that we have seen half of the cases, our new cases overnight, um, were out in the community, uh, active, defying stay-at-home orders. The Premier says it defeats the purpose of a lockdown. Take a listen. But people going about their business, shopping and interacting with others uh, is causing the virus to continue to circulate, and we can't have that happen. In too many examples, we're seeing, we're seeing workers... Uh, who uh, are leaving the house with symptoms or going to work with symptoms. If we want the lockdown to succeed, all of us have to minimise our movements. Well, the good news, Michael, is uh, the testing queues are long. We did see 60,000 tests yesterday. All right, Serena Andaloro in Sydney. That's a bit of good news on the end there. Thank you for that. Anastasia Palaszczuk has been accused of misleading the public in another fiery coronavirus press conference. A journalist questioned the Queensland Premier about a false claim she made on Twitter that the UK government doesn't allow under-40s to get the AstraZeneca vaccine. Have a listen first. Well, there is an article that talks about under-40s to be given an alternative to the AstraZeneca. Sorry, the Twitter account says 
clearly that the UK government won't... No, I actually, you won't hear yesterday either. I actually read from the article, so I'm happy to provide you a copy of that article. No, no, I'm sorry. Let's do one at a time. I'm sorry, I don't know your name. Well, I'm not going to answer people being rude. So anyone else have a question? You are being very rude. All right, got a bit testy there. Our reporter Ned Baum is in Brisbane with more on the story. Uh, Ned, good evening to you. Got a bit uncomfortable there today. Yeah, that's right, Michael. The state government was fighting battles on multiple fronts today. We saw the exchange just before with the Premier alluding to that, that tweet about the UK government not allowing AstraZeneca for under 40s. We can tell you that is false. What the UK government is providing is alternative options. Now, that blunder led to opposition leader David Christofoli referring to the Premier as Dr Google as his response. Now, in addition to that, the Premier has also come out and defended Chief Health Officer Jeanette Young for her strong stance that younger people should only be waiting for the Pfizer or Moderna vaccine. And in addition to that, she's also made the effort to distance themselves from any potential anti-vax messaging. She's come out today and said they're very pro-vaccine, which is not something we really expected to have to hear from a state leader no. in 2021. All in all, a pretty political day as four million people await to hear if they'll be free this time tomorrow night. Yeah, look, and that's the big question. So what, what do we know the chances of lockdown being lifted on time, Ned? Well, at this stage, all signs, they're looking good. We have two new, two new cases today, one linked to the Portuguese centre cluster who has been quarantining, the other a 37-year-old woman who works at the Brisbane International Airport. So good signs so far. We should know more in the morning at an announcement, but it is encouraging. Fingers crossed. All right, Ned Baum in Queensland, thank you. The Prime Minister will complete his isolation tonight following his foreign trip, just in time for tomorrow's National Cabinet. The conference with state and territory leaders is expected to be just a little bit tense after a week of accusations and arguments over the vaccine rollout. Our reporter Rob Scott's in Canberra for us this evening. Rob, good evening to you. Um, this could be an interesting one. What's actually on the agenda tomorrow? Well, two things will dominate, Michael. First, the vaccine rollout. In particular, the Premiers will be demanding clarity on the PM's announcement on Monday night that caught them and doctors by complete surprise, and that is that GPs are now legally protected to give all Australian adults the AstraZeneca vaccine, despite official health advice that it should be reserved for those aged over 60. Mixed messaging that has pitted the states against the Commonwealth and medical leaders against themselves. Now, the second major topic of discussion will be on quarantine, or specifically uh, on the calls from Labor premiers to slash incoming international passenger caps. They're arguing that hotel quarantine cannot cope with the highly contagious Delta variant of COVID brought to Australia by overseas arrivals. But it's not just uh, the number of incoming passengers the Premiers want reduced. WA's Mark McGowan is also critical of the amount of people given exemptions to leave Australia and then come home. In Western Australia, since March of last year, 51,000 people have arrived into hotel quarantine. 1,308 of those people have been through hotel quarantine twice. 506 have been through on three occasions. 82 have been through on four occasions. Eight have been through on five occasions. And two have been through on six occasions. And every time they go overseas, they increase the risk. 
As you said, tomorrow Scott Morrison will come out of his enforced hibernation at the Lodge and Labor has been extremely critical that he hasn't spoken to the Australian people since that confusing mm. media conference on Monday night. No public statements, no interviews, not even a social media post. It says half the country is in lockdown, public health advice is shrouded in confusion and he has remained silent. But we will see him tomorrow though. Apart from National Cabinet, he'll also attend the swearing-in ceremony for the new ministers promoted after Barnaby Joyce's return as Deputy PM. I think it's a fair bet to say he'll have a thing or two to say tomorrow, Rob Scott. There you go. In Canberra, thank you. Well, as politicians draw battle lines over the rollout, here's the good news. The country has recorded its highest daily number of vaccinations. Among the recipients, more than 6,000 people under 40 getting their first or second AstraZeneca shot in the past two days, a third more than the same period last week. Let's go to Estelle Greepink, who's live in Melbourne. Estelle, good evening to you. This is some positive news. There have been conflicting advice, but it seems younger people have made a choice. Well, Michael, that mixed messaging about the rollout has led to some division in opinion, but overall it seems that young people are quite keen to get the vaccine sooner rather than later, and if that means they have to get AstraZeneca instead of waiting for Pfizer to arrive on our shores later in the year, so be it. Ever since under-40s were eligible for the vaccine, we've seen thousands of people turning out, as you say, to roll up their sleeves and get the jab. Some of the main motivators have been travel once the borders open up again and potentially being able to avoid another the lockdown if they are vaccinated. The advice from the federal government at the moment is if you're under 40 and you want to get AstraZeneca, speak to your GP about those rare medical side effects. Let's take a listen now to what some under 40s have had to say today. There's side effects to every vaccine. I think if you you look Tim at the very risks, quickly. They, the, the, the positives really outweigh the risks. The health risks are outweighed by the, the risks of the, the virus. So. I'd just rather, rather go and get it. Well, I'm waiting for a Pfizer because I'm supposed to get AstraZeneca, but I'm doubtful because of my medical history. You've kind of got that constant thing about the clotting in the back of your mind because it's being, it's being talked about so often. But at the end of the day, once I got it done, the main thing I felt was just relief. Yeah, there we go. And as we saw at the bottom of the screen there, Estelle, the record 161,360 vaccinations across Australia today. So that's a, that's a good move. Uh, but it's, it's a role reversal. Um, but now Victoria's become the safe haven for the AFL. It's a big difference, isn't it? What's happening? Big difference, Michael. We're now home to all 18 AFL clubs and that's all in a bid to keep the season going. We're having eight games in round 16 being played here in Victoria this week and there's also talk of matches potentially being played in regional areas as well. So, Michael, it's particularly good news if you're a Melbourne fan of an interstate club because for now, everything is happening right here in Victoria. <laughs> Sport for choice. They're all there. All right, Estelle Greeping in Melbourne tonight. Thank you for that. Now, fire crews have tonight been fighting to save a row of businesses in the New South Wales Southern Highlands, 90 minutes south of Sydney and Barrel there. Flames engulfed a restaurant on Bong Bong Street there around 9 o'clock. The fire was extinguished within an hour, but a large part of the shopping strip was damaged by the blaze. Kensington Palace was once her home and it now holds a permanent tribute to the People's Princess on what would have been her 60th birthday. Hugh Whitfield's live from London now where Princess Diana's statue is being unveiled by sons Harry and William any minute now. Hugh, good evening. What can you tell us about the ceremony? 
Well, Michael, despite the fact that there is a crowd that's gathered here outside Kensington Palace, it is a private event in the sunken garden just off to the side of the palace. A short time ago, we saw Diana's siblings, her brother, the Earl Spencer, and sisters, Lady Sarah McCorkadale uh, and Baroness Fellows, arrive walking through the crowds here to get inside the palace. Inside the sunken garden in the next 15 or 20 minutes or so, William and Harry will line up alongside each other with Diana's siblings uh, and some members of staff from the palace here, including the gardeners and the sculptor who has spent the last couple of years uh, putting this statue together. It's been four years in the making and comes with a renovation to the sunken garden as well, believed to be Diana's favourite place at Kensington Palace. It was called the White Garden for a little while a couple of years ago, planted with white roses. This time, though, it's been fully renovated. 4,000 individual flowers have been planted, including 100 forget-me-nots, which was uh, Diana's favourite flower, Michael. Interestingly, Hugh, they're not taking any of this live. It's very well stage-managed, but a lot of anticipation about the brothers being reunited. Yeah, a very limited number of press allowed inside, just one TV camera, one photographer, very different to the sort of thing that we would normally see at a royal event, particularly something of this magnitude. There, there's a couple of factors here, obviously, William and Harry lining up alongside each other. Uh, they have a, they're in the middle of a feud, there's no other way of putting it, since uh, Harry and Meghan left for California. There'll be a lot of people watching for the body language between the pair. It is understood that they have exchanged text messages in the last couple of days about England's football success. Has that broken the ice? We'll, we'll find out when we see the pictures yeah. from inside the sunken garden. It's thought that they'll be having a private meeting uh, afterwards to try and cool these tensions that have been yeah. occurring between the Cambridges and the Sussexes. And then everyone will be looking out to see what the statue looks like as well, Michael. Of course. All right. Wonderful memory for Princess Diana. Hugh Whitfield there in London outside Kensington Palace. Thank you. Well, Stephen Park was Diana's former protection officer and he joins me now from Rome. Stephen, good evening to you. Thanks for joining the latest. You can't help but feel for the boys today, can you, that they could very much do with their mum around? I, I imagine for the boys it's a very, very sad time and I think there has been some difficulties in perhaps getting the boys together. And I think that those difficulties would definitely not have been around had she still been here. Um, and, and just difficult times. They, they lost a mother when she was 37 years old, mm. um, which is no age. And I think Don, uh, Diana had a, a, a great deal more to give, um, not only to, to the family, but really to the rest of the world. If you look at how many people in London place flowers um, at the funeral outside Kensington Palace. Literally, I remember people throwing flowers on the car as it was driving yeah. uh, to the funeral service at the car, uh, a choking moment. And um, I wonder whether the boys uh, replay that moment or whether they, they want to put it you know, in, in their sort of secret box yeah. in their mind somehow. I don't know. The title The People's Princess was bestowed upon Diana. I wonder whether that's lost a little of, of, of its title over time as people maybe forget about what she did when she was alive. But in your opinion, was that, was that duly deserved, being called The People's Princess? In my view, yes. She was, a, for me, a standalone in the royal family and somebody that could have um, um, modernised, if you like, the, the royal family. Uh, but I think... I think perhaps she's doing that through the boys even now. She wanted the boys uh, uh, to grow up normally, and I think you can see it. I remember Prince William, um, as a two or three-year-old, 
uh, just walking into the canteen of the close protection office at Kensington Palace and just pushing the button on the TV to watch play school. <laughs> um, he, wasn't, he wasn't supposed to be there. Yeah. Um, with uh, another close protection officer racing after him, a nanny racing after him, with a very, very cool um, Princess Diana saying, it's OK, there's, yeah. there's no problem. When people die young, it's hard to imagine them old, but you were so close to Diana for a time there. What do you think, uh, what sort of grandmother would she make to her five, what are now five grandchildren? I think she would have taken it on. Uh, Diana was a sincere, to me, open person. Um, I think she would have been a fantastic grandmother. I don't think she really would have aged. Uh, I don't think she would have looked 60. I think she would have been a young yeah. uh, grandmother that would have taken on the grandchildren as she did her own children. I think she would have been the one at the front of the, the log <laughs> on the flume. Uh, I think she would have been at the front of doing all the, the fun things. Yeah. That's the impression that you got from her, although you saw sadness. There was sadness there. Um, and much like Prince Philip, she would try to avoid close protection staff probably in those moments. Mm. What's your fondest memory of Princess Diana? Um, probably at Balmoral Castle in the very early days. Um, so Balmoral Castle being in Scotland where the royal family had their summer holidays where people could relax, um, they, they, they could walk freely or horse ride. And uh, just, just, just meeting her to talk in general, uh, Princess Diana, when, when you could talk to her normally, that is, those are my fondest memories. When, um, when she wasn't uh, doing her service, well, I think if you're of an age, it's still one of those moments in history where you couldn't believe it when you first heard that Princess Diana had died. And I think her uh, legacy um, is going to be well remembered today. I think it's, it's quite incredible it's taken so long to even erect a statue or some sort of memorial for her. But uh, it's a good move today, don't yeah, you think? Yeah, no, I, I think it's maybe timely. Uh, at 60, uh, the boys are of an age where you can see that they have um, their own ideas. Yeah. If, if only more people uh, in the face of adversity um, could, could, could be like her. She was an amazing person. Really good to talk to you about this, Stephen. We appreciate it and uh, we like your insight very much on this special day. Stephen Park, thanks for joining the latest. Thank you. Well, Donald Trump has told Fox News he's made a decision on whether he'll run for the White House again, but he would not confirm whether it was a yes or a no. Meantime, there's a live shot of the New York District Attorney's Office where the Trump Organization's Chief Financial Officer, there it is, has surrendered tonight as the company faces imminent criminal charges related to tax offences. Jubilant Bill Cosby punched the air as he returned home, freed from prison eight years early. In an extremely rare legal twist, Pennsylvania's highest court threw out the 83-year-old sexual assault conviction after finding he was unfairly prosecuted. The judge upheld a previous district attorney's promise to Cosby that he would not face a criminal trial if he took part in an earlier civil trial. Still in the US court, a judge has refused a bid by Britney Spears' lawyer to end her high-profile conservatorship. But it's not the end of the singer's push to remove her dad's control of her career, finances and medical care. She's alleged abuse in that arrangement, but this latest decision is something of a technicality. Now Spears has to formally ask for her father, Jamie Spears, to be investigated. And the cycling fan who caused one of the Tour de France's worst ever crashes has been arrested. 
The woman had her back to the peloton as she held a sign up for cameras in the tour's opening stage. The woman handed herself into police days after fleeing the scene. She faces a fine around $3,000 as tour organisers prepare to sue her for damages. Ready to pop the question? The jewellers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Well, over the last few days, the AstraZeneca debate between federal and state governments has well and truly escalated after the PM announced the controversial vaccine would be available to those under 40 despite very low blood clotting risks. Let's bring in tonight's panellists, Dee Madigan and Bridget Meany. Good to have you both here again. Uh, let me ask you this first. Now, in arguing AstraZeneca is too risky for young people, the Queensland Premier and the Chief Health Officer have been accused of fear-mongering and spreading extremist views. Dee, let me ask you this. Have they both bumped their head or is this just a political stunt? I, I, I think this is extraordinary that they've been accused of this. On the 17th of June, so we're talking you know, two weeks ago, the federal government said they had so much concerns about the AstraZeneca that they were raising the age from 50 to 60. So all the Queensland government's doing is, hey, we'd rather under 40s not take it. You know, that is, seems to be what is based on medical advice, the same medical advice that the federal government used two weeks ago. So either medicine has changed massively in the last two weeks or it's the federal government playing politics here. Bridget, was it the tone that, they, that both of them used in coming out so vehemently against it, do you think, that it's caused such a reaction? Well, I think it's also the factual inaccuracies that they've used when having this discussion. You know, uh, they've pointed to inaccuracies um, in terms of what the UK is doing and they were quite adamant on Twitter and had to be pulled up by journalists. So I think that, you know, this is a, a, a path we haven't seen leaders tread down to this point in time that has bolstered anti-vaxxer sentiment and I think they should be very wary about how their words are being used by that community. Dee, why did they buy into it so heavily? They the didn't need to. Because they're about to run out of Pfizer. Queensland has said to the federal government, we do not have enough Pfizer. Now, this is the Pfizer the federal government says is preferred for the under 60s. So all this, all of this could have been avoided if we were at the front of the queue for Pfizer like the government said we were. Yeah, that's true. But Queensland, didn't they, Dee, ask for an extraordinary amount of Pfizer, almost half the national allocation. Wasn't that a bit tricky? They were never going to get that. Yeah, but they asked just for enough to vaccinate the people who the federal government had said, the under 60s, who needed the Pfizer. So this is back to the federal government. They do not have enough vaccines. They have stuffed up the vaccine rollout. But why did Queensland then ask for 152,000 doses of an allocation of nationally of 300,000? Because that's what they need. And each state is going to ask for what it needs. And this goes back to the federal government not having enough. It's, the state, of course, is going to say, hey, we've got this many people under the age of 50 and as, or under the age of 60, as per your guidelines 10 days ago, 
This is how many but the guidelines have changed. It is not for Anastasia Palaszczuk to come out and give her opinion. As Daniel Andrews said, we should stop listening to the politicians and young people should consult GPs on what is, is their personal situation and weigh up those risks. Some of these people, uh, you know, are, weigh, are going to their GPs who know their medical history, who, who can weigh up those risks with them. It is not for Anastasia Palaszczuk to weigh in, to misrepresent Ataji advice on this and then demand an unreasonable amount of Pfizer that is clearly just playing politics on the matter. Hold on. The, the Prime Minister came out of the National Cabinet last week acting like he had an agreement from National Cabinet and then we hear afterwards they had no idea about it, changed the advice and we had the Australian Medical Association, the AMA, come out and say, no, we don't support this advice from the Prime Minister. There is so much confusion, but a lot of it goes back to the Prime Minister himself. If you've got an issue with the process, then be up front and say it's about the process. Say that it's about National Cabinet. Don't start poking holes and endorsing anti-vaxxer sentiment and, and calling into question AstraZeneca. Bridget, let me ask you, you're under 40. Everyone... Would, you, would you take the AstraZeneca vaccine? No, but that's because I've consulted my GP and I'm aware of my medical history. My husband went down the road just yesterday and was part of the 3,000 young Australians in the last 48 hours who have gone and consulted their GP and had the AstraZeneca. Dee, what do you think this, uh, you know, Barney, if you want to call it that, has done to the public health information campaign this week? I think that's where the Queensland leadership has copped the most criticism. That, uh, fine, come out, state, the, state your position, but was it the right thing to do this week? Their job is to look after Queenslanders, and I think that's... I think they've done a really good job of this. Uh, you know, all of this come... We have had the worst vaccination, you know, I think in the world in terms of what's happened, and it goes back um, to the leader of the country. But, um, yeah, of course, there's massive concerns now about the AstraZeneca. Whether it's right or wrong doesn't really matter. Mm. But, again, it was the federal government who raised the age you know, two weeks ago. The Queensland Deputy Premier and the WA Premier Mark McGowan have also attacked the Morrison government's overseas arrivals policy in April alone. It's estimated about 10,000 holidaymakers and business travellers entered Australia. Dee, I think the numbers would surprise a lot. They seemed high, while more than 30,000 Australian <laughs> citizens are still stranded overseas. And not only were they high, these are unvaccinated people. And some of them literally put as reason for a holiday. I don't, like, I don't understand this. If we had federal quarantine centres that they were going into, sure enough, to, to allow unvaccinated people from overseas here into hotel quarantine, which we know is not fit for purpose, which is the reason we're all locked down again, is, it just feels like madness. Bridget, uh, the Home Affairs Minister federally claimed that this is the Queensland government's smoke screen, screen rather, to distract from the state's own coronavirus failures. Do you think that's the case? Well, let's firstly state that 83% uh, of arrivals are Australian citizens, permanent residents or the family. So the vast majority are returning Australians. I do think it's a detraction because, as, you know, Dee pointed out quite wrongly, the recent lockdown in Queensland is actually due to the Queensland government's state border laws, which required a person of very low risk travelling from regional Victoria to be shacked up with high-risk people returning from overseas, which is a complete mismanagement of the Queensland government. And that's why we've ended up with an outbreak in Queensland in the Northern Territory and, you know, to some extent in WA. So several million people are locked down because of Queensland government's state border restrictions requiring a low-risk person oh, to reside in between two high-risk people. The, the biggest lockdown in Australia at the moment and the biggest outbreak is in New South Wales, isn't it? 
that is true. Well, absolutely. But up until this point, New South Wales have managed it quite well and we're not seeing the huge spikes that we've seen. And we're certainly seeing a much more proportional reaction by the government to manage that. They're not throwing flurry. They're not throwing mud at other state governments. They're doing what a government is entrusted to do in managing a crisis rather than playing political games and being quite dishonest about the origins of an outbreak in their state in the way that the Queensland government is doing. There's a couple of cases in Queensland. I think there's over 100 cases in New South Wales. And the reason we have it is because Gladys absolutely was playing politics. She didn't want to lock down the state because her shtick was, I don't do lockdowns. Had she done it a little no, bit sooner, we wouldn't all be locked down today. She did not so want to kill now? business. So what's happened now? What's happened business now? She's killed it worse had... because we now have to go into a longer lockdown. We've had a two-week lockdown, let's be honest. We're, you know, six days into that. And I think she's been very proportional in her response. She has been very quick in administering help to the, those communities affected in the way we haven't seen in any other state. And, you know, it remains to be seen whether this is out of control or not. There were 22 cases today, or 24, I think. Um, and I think that she's really trying to manage people's livelihoods in a way that we haven't seen any other state do, in a way we certainly haven't seen WA and Queensland do when they jump into lockdown over two cases of their own making. Dee, let me ask you this whilst we're on the subject of the lockdowns. It seems to have become a bit of an international joke, um, some people describing it all as a bit ridiculous. Have we reacted just too strictly over just really relatively very few cases compared to global standards? Look, no, I think you just have to look at the death rates in Australia to know that's not the case. And we are very lucky geographically that we are an island. I would hate to think that we've come this far and then we just say, oh, no, let's just learn to live with it. We've come this far. We can do this again. And, um, you know, I, I think that Australia can come out of this better than other countries because we came down harder. Bridget, what do you think? The government's strict measures, are they necessary, these lockdowns? Look, I think they have, I think, you know, we have to value human life above all else. Um, and that's important. And that's something we've done really well compared to other countries. But the world is moving on now. They've suffered enormous loss of life in these other countries and they're opening up. And I think what people are looking for uh, is what's Australia's plan here? What does COVID normal look like um, in when we're trying to protect life at all costs? And, you know, what's the path forward here? What are we aiming towards as yeah. a community? I think that's what's getting lost here. The other countries are opening up now because the majority of their residents are vaccinated. And mm. that's, I mean, I feel like we were close to being the best in the world and had our vaccination not been bungled, we would now be in probably the best situation in the world and we're not. Are we both in agreement then that the, the only way to get out of this, the only clear exit strategy, as other countries have shown, I interviewed the chief out of Singapore last night of their infection panel, he said it's mass vaccination. 80% of the population, as quickly as possible, needs to be mass vaccinated. Absolutely. Yep. So just one more question before I go back to Bridget. National Cabinet tomorrow. What does Prime Minister Morrison have to do fast tomorrow with his messaging? Well, he has to show up. We haven't heard from him for three days, which is just extraordinary. Given how much misinformation is around at the moment, I think it'd be good for him to have shown up. Um, but it, what he needs is everyone on the same page. He needs to show the leadership to make that happen. And Bridget, your thoughts on that? I think we have to actually show the population what Australia is going to look like if we don't have... A, a mass vaccine uptake. I think we've actually got to show how we won't get back to normal and what are the negatives if we do not take this path as a community, as a nation.
Yeah, I think we'd all agree on that. All right, Bridget D, um, it's, it's a hot topic. It has been all week. We just need to get cut through it all and make sure that the messaging gets out there and that's got to come from our leadership. All right, thank you both. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Now, Jim Rackton's here with a look at the markets. Thanks, Michael. Well, after storming home to close out the last financial year on such a high note, share markets throughout Asia welcomed the first day of the new financial year by retreating with sell-offs right across the region. Wall Street is taking no notice of that gloom, however. We're looking for a higher open stateside as traders wait for Friday's all-important US jobs report. Another key event takes place tonight. That's the OPEC Plus meeting, bringing together the world's top oil-producing countries to decide how much more supply to release onto the market. Oil is trading higher ahead of that. And after losing quite some ground overnight, the Aussie dollar is still traipsing along at less than 75 US cents. Michael. Well, thank you for your company this evening. From the team here at 7 News, that is the latest. I'm Michael Lusher. Have a great night.